I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, and welcome to Classics Unlocked, a program brought to you by Universal Music and Classics Direct. I'm Graham Abbott. Words are strange things. They're powerful and effective tools which do far more than communicate. They move us, they shock us, they inspire us. And like living organisms, they evolve over time and with continued use. The word prelude is a case in point. It means, and has pretty well always meant, something which comes before something else. An introduction, a preparation. And of course in music it's had that meaning for centuries. A prelude comes before a fugue or a toccata. It opens a dance suite. It starts an opera or ballet. But in the 19th century, in the realm of piano music, a prelude became something else. Large-scale forms like the sonata or sets of variations, those standard structures of the late 18th and early 19th century, began to give way to smaller, more intimate and personal forms of musical expression. Beethoven wrote bagatelles. Schubert wrote impromptus and musical moments. Mendelssohn wrote songs without words. Chopin focused almost exclusively on smaller, freer forms. Most grew out of dances waltzes, mazurkas, polonaises, in addition to that other early 19th century invention, the nocturne. But Chopin's other piano music includes a collection he composed in the late 1830s, a set of 24 short pieces he called preludes. While not the first such collection, Hummel had written a set of 24 piano preludes around 1815, Chopin's set is innovative on every level, showing that a standalone prelude, these pieces don't introduce anything, could be a viable form of musical expression in its own right. From then on, countless composers wrote sets of preludes, many of which are cornerstones of the piano repertoire. Probably the most famous such set of post-Chopin preludes is the subject of this program, the two books of preludes written in the years immediately preceding the First World War by Claude Debussy. To illustrate these musical gems, we'll take extracts from complete recordings of the Debussy preludes made in the 1980s by Arturo Benedetti Michelangeli, recently reissued by Deutsche Grammophon. I regret that time doesn't allow me to include more than an extract from each prelude, but I hope that what I do include will give an idea of the incredible range of moods and styles in this extraordinary collection. Many composers wrote preludes in sets of 24, following the lead of J.S. Bach, whose 48 preludes and fugues comprised two books of 24, with each book covering all 24 major and minor keys. Many composers, for example Hummel, also wrote in all 24 keys. But by the time Debussy came to write his preludes, the idea of key, 
of traditional tonality itself was breaking down. Key wasn't as important as colour or expression or emotional impact. Debussy also wrote 24 preludes in two books of 12, but there is no attempt to cover all the major and minor keys. Debussy's first book of 12 preludes was composed in 1909 and 1910. The first prelude is called Dances of Delphi and uses archaic-sounding harmonies to create the sense of an ancient Greek ritual. It's evident that Debussy wanted to prevent, or at least delay, dictating any meaning to the individual preludes. I said that the first prelude was called Dances of Delphi, but this title is not seen at the top of the score. In each case, Debussy had the titles printed at the end of each prelude, the rationale being that the pianist and the listener should experience the music as pure music and create whatever mental images they wish, if any. It's like he's saying, I don't know what you see when you hear this, but I see Dances of Delphi. Debussy continues the first book with 11 more preludes in a diverse range of moods and styles. Second in the set comes Voile, which, depending on the context, can mean sails or veils. This ambiguity extends to the music itself, which is awash with phrases that briefly flutter, then hang in the air.
The idea of the movement of air is carried even further in the third prelude. This piece, Debussy appends the title The Wind on the Plain. The movement of air informs the fourth prelude as well. For the title of this, Debussy adds a quote from Baudelaire's poem, Evening Harmony, the sounds and fragrances swirl through the evening air. To movement, clear in the first three preludes, Debussy now adds two extra sensations, sounds and perfumes. The phrases rise and hang in the air, then gently fall. Nothing is spelled out literally, but Debussy's detailed musical pointillism provides us with a seriously sensual experience, whether or not we know what the title is. The hills of the island of Capri, known as Anna Capri, are depicted in the fifth prelude of Book One. This was a place the composer knew well. There are suggestions of folk dances and a general air of playfulness in this beautifully understated piece.
By way of total contrast, the sixth prelude is called Footprints in the Snow. An obsessive little rhythmic figure permeates the entire piece, while around it we sense not only footsteps but also trepidation. The movement of air returns in the seventh prelude, called What the West Wind Saw. This is a virtuoso piece requiring a formidable technique, with cascades of rushing notes, countless musical points, making up a ravishing pointillist picture. part of the eighth prelude at the start of the program. Often thought of as a standalone piece, The Girl with the Flaxen Hair was originally planned as a song, and in its final form is rather deceptive. It sounds so easy, and it's well known because the opening melody is so memorable. But the delicacy of touch required to do the piece justice is so difficult to achieve. French composers in the 19th and early 20th centuries often displayed an obsession with Spain. Bizet's Carmen is just the best-known example. Debussy often indulged such a fascination. His orchestral triptych titled Iberia, part of a larger collection called Image, is perhaps the most important. The Iberian Peninsula infiltrates the preludes twice, the first occasion being in the ninth piece of Book One, called Interrupted Serenade. There's an unmistakable imitation of traditional Spanish music here, even to the extent of suggesting the strumming of guitars. 
Who or what might be causing the interruptions is not revealed, but the character of the piece seems to be constantly changing while remaining totally logical and unified. One of Debussy's most famous and imposing piano works comes next. The Submerged Cathedral is rather more prescriptive in its musical painting, given the fact that it's based on an ancient Breton legend. This tells of the Cathedral of Is, which lay off the coast under the water. On clear mornings it would rise out of the sea, and Debussy evokes not only the rising of the massive edifice, but the sounds of monks chanting, bells ringing, and in the stunning climax, the organ thundering from the ruins.
Debussy visited England a number of times and had a genuine interest in English literature. On three occasions this is evident in the preludes, the first of which being the 11th prelude of Book One. Called The Dance of Puck, it has been the cause of some controversy among scholars. The puck of the title could refer to the famous fairy in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, or it could refer to Puck in Puck of Pook's Hill by Rudyard Kipling. Debussy knew both. A similar sort of playfulness infuses the final prelude of Book One, simply called Minstrels. It's clear that the minstrels here are those in popular music hall shows and not medieval troubadours. In this we have another evocation of guitars, or perhaps banjos, added to which the composer asks the pianist at one point to play quasi-tamburo, evoking the shaking of a tambourine, or possibly the playing of a small drum. Even this direction is typically ambiguous. Debussy's second book of preludes was completed and published in 1913. It also contains 12 pieces, and the titles for each were again printed at the end of each piece rather than at the start. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A number of ideas recur, ideas which clearly inspired the composer's muse. The first prelude of Book 2 is a case in point. Called Fogs or Mists, we have here again the swirling, almost blurry soundscapes we encountered in some of the Book 1 pieces. But here, the mood is far more sinister. 
A depiction of autumn leaves, again melancholy and presaging decay, characterises the second prelude of Book Two. The sense of gloom is briefly broken now and then, but always returns as if to suggest that nature is unconcerned at the presence of death in the cycle of all things. Then in the third prelude, we have another evocation of Spain. The appended title in Spanish here is translated as The Wine Gate and refers to an imposing portal in the Alhambra in Granada. The Spanish connection is reinforced by Debussy's indication that the piece is to be played in the style of a habanera. There's no attempt to actually portray the physical characteristics of the gate in music, perhaps apart from the imposing opening, but the sense that the Alhambra is a beautiful, magical place was clearly a springboard for this mesmerising prelude.
The fourth prelude of Book Two again uses a quote from a piece of English literature as its title. Fairies are exquisite dancers comes from J.M. Barrie's Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens, a book which Debussy's daughter was reading at the time. Full of trills and swirls, it's a delicate virtuoso dance requiring energy and delicacy from the pianist in equal measure. By way of complete contrast, Heather, the fifth piece in Book 2, returns to the gentle world of the girl with the flaxen hair in Book 1. There's a definite air of Englishness about the landscape depicted here. When we come to the sixth prelude, though, we're confronted with something altogether different. The title is General Levine, Eccentric, and the tempo direction is In the Style and Tempo of a Cakewalk. Debussy's most famous cakewalk, executed by Gollywog, is found in his children's corner suite, but here we have a parody of an actual person. General Levine was Edward Levine, an American clown who performed in Paris in 1910 and 1912. Debussy seems to have been a fan if this piece is anything to go by. The strutting cakewalk is occasionally interrupted by clowning around, pratfalls and general silliness. But the music itself is far from silly. As usual, Debussy takes a seemingly flippant point of departure to create a miniature masterpiece.
might not seem apparent from its title, but the seventh prelude of Book Two also has a British connection. Called The Terrace of Spectators by the Light of the Moon, this piece springs from Debussy reading accounts of the 1911 coronation of George V as Emperor of India. Here the composer blends current events with mystery and sensuality. The result is a piece which has tiny moments of playfulness, or are they flashes of light, in an otherwise dreamy and calm environment. The legend of the water nymph Ondine has inspired some famous works of art. In music, perhaps the most famous is the first section of Ravel's Gaspard de la Nuit, written in 1908, only a few years before these preludes. The following year, an English translation of Fouquet's novel based on the story was published, with stunning illustrations by Arthur Rackham, and it was these illustrations which provided the direct impetus for the eighth prelude of Book Two. While nowhere near as grandiose or as long as Ravel's version, Debussy's miniature leaves us in no doubt as to the watery world in which this elusive creature lives.
Another English inspiration is immediately evident in the ninth prelude, which is homage to S. Pickwick Esquire, PPMPC. The title, rather more in Satie's style than Debussy's, refers to the famous Dickens character, and the initials are said to stand for Perpetual President Member of the Pickwick Club. Slower, pompous music alternates with playful episodes, and this slower music is based on God Save the King, heard right at the start in the bass. The tenth prelude of Book Two is very short and has a very dark atmosphere. Its French title, Canope, refers to canopic jars used as burial urns in ancient Egypt. Again, we have gloominess and death, a recurring theme over both books, but in this case it stems from a personal interest of the composer. Debussy owned two jars of material from a burial site in Canobos in Egypt, and the sparse, almost aloof depiction of the world of the dead in this piece is occasionally broken by almost playful passages. Then, in the penultimate piece, we have what is, in all respects, a study, an étude. It would be another two years before Debussy would write his last major piano work, a set of 12 études completed in 1915. But here, as the second-last prelude, the title is unmistakably pointing in that direction. It's simply called Alternating Thirds. Yet here there's much more going on than a mere technical exercise. 
Using very little solid musical material, Debussy fashions a fascinating miniature which, unlike the other preludes, has no extra musical meaning at all. And then, to conclude the second book, Debussy fashioned one of his most brilliant and colourful pieces, Fireworks. The dazzling portrayal of sky rockets and Catherine wheels is clearly evident, as is the hint that the fireworks are marking Bastille Day. We're made aware of this by the subtle, distant quote of part of La Marseillaise near the end. Debussy's 24 preludes are one of the landmarks of 20th century piano music, and they've been recorded many times by some of the greatest pianists. Arturo Benedetti Michelangeli, who died in 1995 at the age of 75, was a controversial and enigmatic figure, but there are few who dispute his claim to being numbered among the greats. Debussy was one of the cornerstones of his repertoire, and we heard in this program extracts from a recent reissue from Deutsche Grammophon of Michelangeli's complete recordings of the Debussy preludes originally recorded in the 1980s. My thanks to Tom Ford for the technical production of Classics Unlocked. I'm Graham Abbott, and I look forward to sharing more great music with you very soon. We'll end with Debussy's fireworks. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.